Well, please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. If you're visiting with us this evening, we are uh, continuing in our series through this great letter. We're almost to the end of it. Uh, we have come to chapter 3. We're, we'll be reading, I'll be reading uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. We'll be thinking particularly of verses 3 through 10. Uh, so hear God's word, 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. I wonder when you hear the word persecution, uh, what comes into your mind? Now, perhaps you uh, immediately think of physical persecution, as we read of in the, the Bible in the early church. Or maybe you think of political uh, persecution, as uh, Carl alluded to in the, uh, the nation of India and, and the, the, the new constitution that's on draft now before uh, their legislative body that, that would take away the right of a Christian uh, to vote. Uh, but we need to remember that persecution of God's people takes many forms, including being verbally mocked and maligned and derided. Didn't Jesus speak of this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, when he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me? Now, to be sure, this form of persecution is probably not as severe, right? And yet verbal persecution is persecution nonetheless. And it's often for us here in America as Christians, the, the primary form of, of persecution that uh, we might receive. We've all felt it, haven't we? We've all experienced uh, what it's like. We've all been unfortunately intimidated and, and cowered by uh, this, uh, this experience of, of verbal persecution, of maligning, of ridicule. Right? Maybe it's been a a parent, maybe it's been a sibling, maybe it's been a coworker, maybe it's been a, a teacher or a boss, someone a superior over you. We hear it from the world around us, from the media, from the sports world, from entertainment and politics. Right? We, we hear these sorts of things. What a naive idiot you are to believe the Bible is true, right? You're such an arrogant jerk, you're such a bigot, you're such an extremist. It's that type of persecution 
that Peter is referring to here in our text. You see it there in verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. Knowing this first of all, one of the, the, the primary things Peter wants to remind his readers of and us of is that this verbal persecution and, and opposition and mocking should not surprise us. It is to be expected. Why? Because we live in the last days. In the last days, this will happen. When Peter speaks of the last days, he is referring to the entire time between the, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's the way that he interpreted the phrase on the day of Pentecost when he quoted from the book of Joel, who spoke of the last days. And Peter is saying, what you see happening on this day, the day of Pentecost, is the fulfillment of Joel. We are in the last days. The early church was in the last days. We're in the last days. Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, it will be the last days. And in those last days, scoffers will come, scoffing at us, mocking at God's word, particularly with regard to God's promise of Jesus coming to judge the world on the last day. You see it there, don't you, in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? So how do we answer the scoffer? Right? How do we answer the cynic who, who looks at the 2,000 years since Jesus came to this earth and promised to come again and, and says, how can you Christians still believe in him? Right? How can you still believe in one who, who said he would return and yet he hasn't? And it's been 2,000 years. Where is the promise of this God that you keep talking about? Why don't you just come and do what we do? Right? We get to live according to the lust of our flesh. We get to do what feels good. We get to do what's pleasurable. Why do you bow down to this God and, and obey his rules? And, and all the while, he's not doing what he said he would do. Now, maybe it's not the scoffer that says those sorts of things to you. Maybe it's your own heart and mind. Right? Maybe it's your, your own doubts as you, as you seek to live the Christian life before the Lord. And yet, you read a verse like this and you think, what's well, a... It's a pretty good question, right? It's something that I've thought about and wrestled with myself. How do we answer our own hearts? All right. Well, Peter, in this passage, gives us some answers, doesn't he? And interestingly enough, he gives us answers from the word of God. He gives us three answers, in fact. First, with Moses' history in Genesis, Peter undercuts the scoffer's logic. Second, with Moses' poetry in Psalm 90, Peter explains God's delay. And third, with Jesus' words from Matthew 24, Peter warns us to be vigilant. Let's look at these three things together. First, with Moses' history in Genesis, Peter undercuts the scoffer's logic. In verses 5 to 7, Peter tells us that the, the scoffers argue from the stability and the uniformity of nature, the regular course of nature's laws, to, and they contend that, that the universe is a closed system, that God cannot or, or will not intervene. You see it there in the rest of verse 4. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, they say, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You can hear their logic, can't you? Look, because everything has always been the way that it is, because toothpaste always comes out of the tube when you squeeze it, right? Because when you drop a ball, it never falls up, it always falls down, right? Because all these things are always the way they are, and they're never going to be any different, 
nothing's going to change. It's going to continue like it's always been. Right? All this talk about the end of a world and of a Savior coming and this, this, this person returning, it's all a fable. It's all a fiction. But here, Peter, in verses 5 and 6, he's like that running back that, that gets tackled into the sideline. And you see that coach with his head set like around his neck. And all of a sudden, a coach that was standing up, his legs are, are cut out from underneath him, and he's flat on his back. And Peter is that running back into that coach. How do we see that? How is he cutting the legs out from underneath the scoffer's logic? He's doing it by pointing back to Moses' account of the creation and the flood in the book of Genesis. And he's showing that their deduction from their premise is fatally wrong. Look at what he goes on to say. They deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Do you see what Peter is saying? The stability of nature, the uniformity of nature, in no way implies that God cannot or will not interrupt this world. He is the one who created this world from nothing by the word of his power through water. And by that same word. He intervened to, to uncreate, to decreate the world when he judged sin at the flood. Peter says scoffers willfully, intentionally, deliberately forget about creation in the, in the flood. They overlook it. Right? They're like a, a boy who, who sticks his fingers in his ears and says, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. Right? Or to use that great illustration of, of Cornelius Van Til, I think it was, who said that they, they sit in the father's lap to slap his face, right? They, they, they experience the uniformity of nature. They experience the fact that God holds all things together. And yet they use that to deride the God who made them. Peter's saying it's, it shouldn't surprise us. This is going to happen. It's no accident. It's no surprise in the least that Satan would attack the truthfulness of creation and a global flood. That he would deny creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. That he would spread this lie of, of evolution. That he would deny a flood that destroyed every creature except for Noah and his family and the creatures on the ark with him. Of course the world doesn't want these realities to be true. Because if creation is true, then we are not, as the poem Invictus says, the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. If the flood is true, then judgment is a reality. And, and it's evident that our behavior will be held accountable. Indeed, that global flood was an advance warning on a, a very small scale of the judgment that is to come. As Peter says there in verse 7, But by the same word of God, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Have you ever, perhaps when you were a child, taken a, a globe and, and spun it as fast as you could and then put your finger on it and just stopped it? The Bible says that one day, the Lord who is spinning the earth, who holds the earth in its, in its orbit and its spins, is one day going to stop everything. He's going to intervene decisively. He's going to judge the ungodly, Peter tells us. And even now, his word is reserving and, and keeping the creation in existence for that fiery judgment. Just because the world doesn't see God judging now, although as Romans 1 tells us, God is judging now. But just because the world doesn't see that doesn't mean that he will not judge on the last day. 
And so if you, this evening, are yourself a scoffer, and you read there in in verses 3 and 4, and you say, that's what I think, that's what I'm saying in my own heart, then hear what Peter is saying. God has created. God has judged through the flood. God can, God will intervene to bring justice, to bring judgment. And he will do it on a day of his determining. And so for us who belong to the Lord, this is the answer that we would give to the scoffer. God has created all things. The mere fact that you exist, O scoffer, the mere fact that you breathe and and that, that the sun rises, it reminds us not that God can't intervene, but that there is a God who has made all things, who is holy and who judges the ungodly and who will judge the ungodly. So Peter answers the scoffer first by taking Moses' account of, of creation and flood in Genesis and undercutting the legs and the logic of the scoffer. But secondly, Peter takes the, the poetry of Moses in Psalm 90 and he explains God's delay. We see this in verses 8 and 9. He, here in this text, proposes to acknowledge right, that, that the truth of what the scoffer is, is saying is real. It's a real truth. Right? God's judgment has indeed been delayed. Right? They're acknowledging something that is legitimate, is accurate. Jesus has not yet come back, and it's been over 2,000 years. But is this because God has deceived us? Is this because God has decided not to come again, not to send his son again? Is it because God is just late like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland? Is it because he, God is like a, a college student who sleeps in? And misses class? Is God just slow? Of course, the answer is no, 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 and no. God is not slow. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. And Peter gives us two reasons. He says, first, God is not slow because God relates to time in a radically different way than we do. It's it's interesting. In verse 8, uh, when, when Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, he's using the exact same verb that he had used earlier in verse 5 with regard to the scoffers. He, now he's applying it to us as Christians. He's saying, look, the scoffers willfully and deliberately overlook the creation and the flood, but we must not willfully and deliberately overlook the fact that what appears to be slowness to us is not, in fact, slowness to God as he reckons time. Oh, God is the eternal creator of time. He is the transcendent one, the sovereign over time. He's not bound by time as we, his creatures, are. He exists outside of time. Now, Peter, where did he learn this? Well, of course, he learned it from Moses. He learned it from Moses in Psalm 90, when Moses writes, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, like a watch in the night. And Moses knew that men and women, boys and girls, are frail children of dust who die after 70 or 80 years. Moses had also seen the burning bush that burned and burned but was never consumed. He had heard God reveal himself there at the bush as Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I I will be. He's the eternal God. He is the dwelling place of his people forever. 
To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. What seems a, 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 a short time to us is, is a long time to God, and what seems a long time to us is a, a short time to God. And don't we get a, a little taste of this as we think back to our own lives? My birthday is January 12th, right? Christmas Day is December 25th. I don't remember ever as a child thinking that the, the duration from December 25th to January 12th was a, uh, you know, a really short time. It always seemed like a long time before my birthday came. But now it feels like it's just a snap of fingers. It's like really quick, December 25th, already December, you know, January 12th. Why is it that, that way? Why do we, we think back to our college days? And you, when you were in college, it felt like forever, didn't it? Right? I mean, this is the longest time. This is awesome. You got four years. And now you think back and you think, four years? College went by like that. Right? Why does our, our brain think that way? Because we, we intuitively understand what, what, what Moses and what Peter are saying here. And if that's true of the way we think about time, how it seems relative, how much more? The delay of God's judgment and the coming of his son, though it may seem to be long to us, yet to God, it is no time at all. God is not slow. He's not late. He's not in a, a hurry. Right? Rather, what God is, is patient. He's patient. And that's the, the second reason that he's not slow. You see it there in verse 9. God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is there a delay? There's a delay because God is lengthening the time that sinners can repent and turn from their scoffing and unbelief and be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Be saved from this ungodly generation and the judgment that awaits it. This delay in judgment, you see, is a manifestation of the tender mercy and, and kindness of God to sinners. But we must take care how we read, shouldn't we? This passage, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, is one of those difficult texts. It's interesting that, that, that Peter in a few verses is going to say, there's some things in, in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. You're like, that's sort of like the pot calling the kettle black, right? I mean, Peter, you've written some things that are hard to understand, like right here. Right? How, are we to, how are we to make sense of this? Right? This is one of those texts that those who deny God's sovereignty and salvation— Right? Arminians, we call them, as they follow the teachings of, of, of James Arminius. This is a text that they would hold up against those of us who would call ourselves Calvinists, right? following the teachings of, of John Calvin. And they would say, look, you see here, 2 Peter 3, 9. How can you believe that God is sovereign in salvation? There it is in black and white. God is not wishing, God is not willing that, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How can you Calvinists say that God has only elected some to eternal life. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this text an Achilles heels for, for Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists? Well, how do we answer that? Let's first answer it by, by asking if the Arminians and the view of, of Arminianism with regard to this text, if it holds true of the rest of the Bible. Let's compare scripture to scripture. Is God really a God? Is the God of the Bible really a God who, who has chosen to save every single person if they'll just believe? Is God really a God who, who, who hopes and hopes and hopes against hope that everyone will turn to him and be saved? Who, who begs and pleads with sinners to, to come to the salvation that he's made available to everyone to accept if they will just use their free will and, and choose to come, but in the end, 
man's free will really trumps everything because it's supreme and it's sovereign. Is God a weak and a powerless God who wrings his hands in dismay and despair that Satan and sin have have messed up all of his plan, who can't do anything about the fact that so many people refuse to come to Jesus? Did Jesus die to make salvation possible for everyone without exception, but not certain for anyone so that Jesus' death could have been potentially in vain? Has God sent his spirit to really try his hardest and his best, but you know, sometimes you just can't close the sale. Is this the view of God that we want to have as we read the scriptures, that we do have as we read the scriptures? Absolutely not. The Bible teaches what we call the doctrines of grace, what we call, uh, you know, anachronistically the five points of Calvinism, that mankind is dead in, in sin and trespasses. Man's will is not free. It's enslaved, total depravity. That, that God has chosen to save some of these undeserving sinners out of his free, free mercy and unconditional grace. He has given them, as Dean said this morning, as a love gift to his son. Unconditional election. He sent his son to, to come into this world, to die as a substitute in the place of those sinners, not merely making salvation possible, but purchasing and securing the salvation of all that the Father had given to him. Securing even their faith and their repentance. Limited, particular, definite atonement. And God, by his Holy Spirit, irresistibly and effectually draws to himself and saves sinners, irresistible grace. These are the the doctrines that humble us and give glory to God and salvation. What do we do with this text then, you might say? We can understand it in at least two ways, both of which could be right and could be true. First, we can note that the Bible uses this language of of God's will in, in different ways. Sometimes God's will refers to his his will of decree. What he has ordained actually will come to pass. Other times we see in the Bible that God's will is not his, his will of decree, but his will of command, his revealed will. That is what God wants us to do, what God desires us to do, what God wishes would be the case in our lives. And that may well be the the way we are to understand this reference to God's willing and and wishing here in this verse. He is saying, Peter is saying that that, that God has revealed to us that his will, his desire, his command is that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is like a, a just judge who is also full of compassion, right? Who doesn't have a sadistic delight and convicting and the the, the guilty. Rather, he commands sinners to repent and to believe. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, as Ezekiel 33, 11 says, but that the wicked would turn from his evil ways and live. So that may be the way we are to understand this passage. That was, in fact, John Calvin's understanding of this text, that that the wishing, the willing here was not referring to, to God's decree, but to God's command. God's will in the sense that this is what he wants. This is his desire for his people. Even as he says to us in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. The will of God. But another way we can understand this passage is is to note that Peter here is writing to Christians. God is patient toward you. That is the people of God. 
not the world at large. God is not willing, i.e. his his eternal decree is not that any of his elect would perish, but that all of his elect would be brought to eternal life in Jesus Christ in due time. And therefore he delays his, his coming and judgment until all the elect around the world have come to repentance and faith. This was the view of R.C. Sproul. Now again, both views are are true depending on how you understand the words any and and willing. I honestly struggle to know which one is best. I probably lean toward the second myself. But regardless of how you understand them, clearly it can be synthesized with a view of a sovereign God who has chosen a people for his own sake. And both views should lead us as the people of God to the same place, both to a comfort in the patience of God knowing that God waits and tarries long to bring his people to himself, but also to an evangelistic zeal that mimics our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 11, 25 and 30. I don't have time to talk about it now, but go and read and see how the Lord Jesus, after he declares the sovereignty of God and salvation, immediately calls to the people that are hearing him to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus has no inhibition of calling promiscuously, freely, those sinners who are hearing his voice to come to him. God, like a flight attendant, holding the plane and and holding the door open until all whom he has chosen come to him. He is calling all who hear my voice, the voice of every preacher, the voice of you when you share the gospel of Christ. He is calling sinners to repent and to believe. God is a, a kind God. And so we preach and share the gospel as freely as Jesus did. We know God's command that all men everywhere should repent. And we know that God uses the foolishness of preaching and speaking the word of God to bring sinners to himself. We don't know who the elect are, but we know that the Holy Spirit opens the hearts of God's elect to respond to the word that is preached. And so the The purpose for the delay is that God's people would be brought to himself. As one man put it, the delay of Christ's second coming is not a failure of God's plan, but it is the condition of its success. There must be a delay so that all those that God has chosen would come to saving faith and repentance. So we've seen Peter use the the words of Moses in in Genesis to undercut the logic of the scoffers. We've seen Peter use the words of of Moses in Psalm 90 to explain the delay of God. And finally, we see Peter take Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and warn us, exhort us to be vigilant. Look in verse 10. God tells us that, that though he is a patient God, Yet one day his patience will run out. And the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus' return in glory to save his people and to judge his enemies will come. And it will come, as Peter remembered Jesus saying back in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, it will come like a thief in the night. Without warning, unexpectedly, suddenly, and disastrously for all of those who are not keeping watch. And therefore we must stay on the alert. We must keep watch. We must not fall asleep. We must be vigilant. We must never promise ourselves tomorrow and put off repentance until another day. And Peter moves us to this vigilance by reminding us what will happen when Jesus returns. 
You see it there in verse 10. First, he says that the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. That, that fire that he had already mentioned in verse 7 will cause the heavens to, to disappear loudly, right? to be replaced with a new heaven, Revelation 21 tells us. The elements, all the, the component parts of, of God's creation in the universe, they will be done away with. Here we see the same thing that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. The second coming will not be a quiet thing, a secret thing, a private thing. It will be loud. It will be destructive. We'll hear the archangel's voice. We'll hear the sound of a trumpet. We'll hear the roar of flames. But the second thing that Peter tells us here that will happen when Jesus returns is that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Literally, the Greek reads, will be found not only will there be physical destruction of the heavens, but there will be this spiritual uncovering of all the moral deeds that have been done on earth. When Christ returns, no one will have a place to hide. Right? Even as God appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden, as they tried to hide and they could not hide. So Peter tells us here that everything we have done and thought and said, all of our works will be brought into the light. In broad daylight, fallen man will see that there is no excuse, no opportunity to say, well, but I didn't know. I didn't know enough. No, everything will be brought into the light. All the taunts of the scoffers will be made in vain. They will be made to see that their taunts and their scoffs were in vain. Their lives had been in vain. This is a terrifying picture, and Peter intends it to be a terrifying picture to all who are outside of Christ. But if you are in Christ, if you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, though we know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we be judged according to our works, yet ultimately, as he says in Romans 8.1, there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we wait for the blessed hope. We wait for the appearing of our God and Savior. We long for it to come. We eagerly await it. We want the Spirit to come and give us the, the adoption as sons, the, the, the restoration and redemption of our bodies. We want Jesus to come and take this lowly body and transform it into conformity with his glorious body, as Paul says in Philippians 3. And as I give you a little hint about next week, that this hope, this glorious hope, it leads to transformation. It leads to moral conformity to the will of God, the word of God, the commandments of God. It leads to holiness and to godliness. So as we meditate upon our, our purpose statement, these mornings of this month, right, our desire to pursue transformation by truth and grace together to the glory of Christ, right, as we faithfully communicate all of God's word and gather in the lost and equip the saints to, to actively participate in ministry, you see this truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ Peter intends it to gather in the lost, to equip the saints, to make us vigilant. As the word of God goes forth, the reality, the certainty of the coming of Jesus, the coming of God, in the face of all scoffers, this reality transforms us. And it does it together as we, sitting in this room tonight, hearing this word together, having our hearts strengthened and encouraged by the, the truth that God is patient, patient toward us. That God is using the preaching of his word to strengthen us. Together we're bringing glory to Christ as we long for his return. So people of God, take heart.
Lift up your heads and see that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is drawing near. In all of our suffering, in all of our affliction, we can trust him. He will do what is right. He is our holy king. He is the holy judge of all the earth. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we long for him to come. We cling to his word as Peter demonstrates for us, even as he answers the scoffers, clinging to the word of God in all things, longing for the return of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its converting and sanctifying power. Oh Lord, we thank you how it grows us in hope. It grows us in faith. It grows us in love. Oh Lord, do the work that only you can do by your spirit. Come, oh Lord, give us this great confidence. Give us a sober fear and reverence of your uh, terrible judgment. Oh Lord, give us a, a hope in the righteousness of Christ that clothes us when we believe in him so that we might await with great and eager expectation the return of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.